welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Do you ever feel exhausted? Do you ever feel overextended in every area of your life, depleted? Do you ever feel as if there is never enough time in the day or enough money in the bank? Do you ever think that perhaps everybody else is having a better life than you somewhere else? These are very modern predicaments, very common states of mind, and yet they are addressed beautifully in the Bible in some of the most ancient literature of all time. And so I'm excited today to be launching a new three-part series uh, that is exploring one of the most romantic and one of the most revolutionary stories in the Bible. It is a story that provides ancient keys to help us all to live more joyfully and generously and with greater margin in our lives. And unusually in this church, I'm going to be delivering all three of these talks in this series this week and next week. And then we're going to have a break for one week because we've got Julian Adams with us, the amazing prophetic voice from South Africa. Uh, You do not want to miss that. And then on the 1st of December, we will conclude this three-part series. It is called The Angel's Share, How to Waste Your Life Beautifully. And uh, that is because, as you may know, the angel's share is a term used in the process of distilling whiskey. Uh, Whiskey is aged in uh, wooden barrels. I'm not talking about cheap moonshine. If any of you listening in America, don't confuse your stuff with us. Uh, quality Scottish single malts that we have over here. And, um, and, and the thing is that the wooden casks draw much of the unpleasant stuff out of the distillate, things like uh, sulfur, and then they imbue the whiskey with the flavor of whatever has been previously in the cask. And because wood is porous, stuff can evaporate through it. And they reckon that up to 2% of volume per annum just evaporates uh, from uh, a cask of whiskey, which has always driven the HMRC furious because you don't, you don't get the tax on the full amount that goes in because it, it mysteriously disappears. And so uh, for many years, they've referred to this as the angel's share. The, 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 the 2% that just disappears to the heavens, drunk by the angels overnight. And of course, the, the thing is this, that actually it is, it is that wastefulness, it is that evaporation uh, process that gives the whiskey its intensity, its strength, and uh, its value. Whiskey is one of the most valuable commodities on earth precisely because of the extreme wastefulness of its process, the slowness of its aging, the inefficiency of maturation, the angels share. And so we are going to think together about 
how we waste our lives beautifully. And you're going to see why this story we're going to root our uh, teaching in is relevant to that. The backstory is this. Many, many years ago, a man and a woman from a little town you may have heard of called Bethlehem went to a land called Moab. Uh, they went as foreigners. We think they were probably economic migrants. They went to get better jobs. They had two sons. Everything was going well. The business was going well. Their sons grew up healthy and handsome and married two young Moabites women. And then in a single year, tragedy struck. And the father died and both sons died. So just the wife whose name was Naomi, was left with two daughters-in-law. And so she gathered her two daughters-in-law. One was called Orpah and the other was called Ruth. And she said, look, you might as well just go home to your families because what have we got left? No husbands, no son. And I'm going to go back to where I'm from. It's a place called Bethlehem. And uh, I just hope someone will help me. And one of the daughters, Orpah, not Oprah, uh, Orpah said to her, um, great, and went back to her family. But the other one, Ruth, said some words that are often used in wedding services. You may have heard them. She said, you know, where you go, I go. Your people will become my people. And so Ruth set off with her mother-in-law to a foreign land that was a homeland for Naomi. And they arrived there, and that's where we're going to pick up this story. This is Ruth chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 2 to 12. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, remember that's her mother-in-law, let me go out to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and she entered a field and she began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, oh, she's the Moabite. She came back from Moab with, you know, with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field. She's remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in anyone else's field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me and watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. Uh, I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, to go and get your drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner? Make sure you notice foreigners. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland. You came to live with a people that you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And you may well know how the story unfolds. Boaz and Ruth fall in love and marry. And they have kids. And their kids have kids. 
and their great-grandson is David, the shepherd boy David. Why is it that Bethlehem is the town of David? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Because of this story. And, and so David grows up there, and then he becomes king of Israel, and God uh, strikes a covenant with him. And then, of course, you keep chunking down the Davidic line, and you come to Jesus. And, and when uh, Mary and Joseph, uh, Mary's pregnant, and then this most annoying thing happens, the wretched you know, emperor, foreign emperor says, you've all got to go back to your homeland for some stupid administrative census. And Joseph's going, for crying out loud, <laughs> I've got a lot on my plate. My wife's about to pop. She's about to drop, you know, and, and they, have to, they have to go back to Bethlehem. Why? Because it's where they're from. Because it's where David was from. Because it's where Boaz was from. It's where Boaz met Ruth. And so... In six weeks' time, we'll be remembering the king born in Bethlehem. But it begins in this story. Here's what I find so amazing. Because Boaz was willing to not be driven by maximum efficiency... He was willing not to be driven, if you like, by the bottom line. He was willing to waste some of what was at the corners of his fields. He stepped into his ultimate destiny. If Boaz had been maximum efficiency, every sheaf counts, every penny. <laughs> My Scottish grandmother used to say, every mickle makes a muckle. You know, Take care of the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. If that had been Boaz's attitude, he would have made a bit more money. And you and I would never have heard of him. And he wouldn't even know that he'd missed out on the ultimate destiny to start the messianic line. Wow. It was through what Boaz was willing to waste that he discovered the grace of God. So the Torah um, commanded the Old Testament, you know, that, that, the laws there in the, in, 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 in the Old Testament commanded that farmers were not to reap to the corner of their fields. They were not to strike their olive trees more than once. And they were not to remove all the grapes from their vines so that there would be enough left over for widows and orphans, for the poor. It is probably the earliest social welfare system in the world. It is a radical model of wealth redistribution right there in the Bible. And Boaz was honoring that requirement. And through his faithfulness, he met his wife, he started a family, he stepped into his destiny. And we'll be singing the songs in six weeks' time. I had the privilege of visiting Indonesia a few years ago, and um, someone took me out for coffee, and this was a significant cup of coffee because it was the most expensive coffee in the world. Uh, the most expensive coffee in the world is called Lowak coffee. You may know this. Uh, it's called Lowak because uh, there's a, a weaselly-type animal called a Lowak that uh, eats the cherries from the coffee plants, and through the process of ingestion and digestion and excretion, these cherries 
are robbed of many of their more harsh chemicals and they create this incredible coffee. So expensive that in New York City today, a cup of low-wack coffee costs you between $50 and $75 a cup. Pooed out by a weasel. <laughs> now, I, I should tell you at this point, I didn't pay for the coffee, and it's much, 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 much cheaper in Indonesia where the low-wacks are from. But it was the most intense, strongest coffee I've ever had in my life. And of course, it does beg the question, if you even have half an imagination, I've often pondered, who first discovered this? <laughs> what did they think they were doing? The backstory is, um, I'm told that the, 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 the Dutch uh, uh, colonists had come in and they had sort of uh, taken all the crops. And so there was obviously someone on some coffee plantation somewhere, he'd lost all his crops to the Dutch invaders. And he must have been, maybe he had a bit of a, a coffee addiction, perhaps like one or two people here. We could probably move straight to the response time right now. And, um, and, and, and he kept eyeing up these, these uh, coffee cherries that he could see in the poo at his feet. And there must have been the moment he thought, no one needs to know. <laughs> he washed them off, had a little, roast them up, brewed them up, and he's like, oh my goodness, the best coffee in the world. And then, and then there came the moment, I'm going to have to tell someone. <laughs> I reckon he went to his farmer friends. He said, look, before I tell you, I just I, I taste this. Just trust me, taste this. And they were like, this is the best coffee in the world. Where did it come from? And he's like, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. <laughs> and eventually he told them, and that's how we have Loak coffee. The point is this. It is so often through the waste of our lives that the greatest grace, the greatest beauty comes. It is the time we waste in private prayer. It is the time that we waste with a loved one in cultivating a friendship or a romance. When Sammy and I were first dating, darling, I don't even know what we talked about. <laughs> Hours on the phone. I mean, these days we manage about seven minutes sometimes, don't we? You know, it's like, you know, we, we wanted to be together every night. And, and I mean, that's, that's how you fall in love. And it, it, it's, it's through the time that we, uh, we waste in creativity and imagination. No real creativity flows from a hyper-efficient environment. It's the money that we give away which changes the lives of others. The money we retain for ourselves and spend on ourselves can't really change anything for anyone else in any significant way. Even our greatest waste, our greatest failures in life can, handled right, become some of the greatest blessings. I think, for example, of Nelson Mandela, locked away, on Robin Island, incarcerated for 27 years. What a waste. But we know that the man who went in as an angry firebrand came out as a global statesman. Perhaps the greatest example of a wasted life, and I say this reverently, is Jesus Christ. I mean, what could be more wasteful? than the God who is busy running the universe, swapping that job description for being an incontinent, inarticulate baby. It's a waste. 
And then the slow process of growing up. Any mums here relate to this? How slow the growing up process is? How long it takes to walk and talk and learn to wipe your own bottom? The years going through adolescence. Hello? What a waste. You, you're perfect. You could be running the cosmos, not doing this. Bursting spots on the mirror. And it's 30 years before he does any public ministry. What a waste. We've got Jesus Christ on planet Earth and he's making tables for Mrs. Miggins round the corner. What a waste. And then he starts ministering and it's pretty good. That's not a waste. Says some pretty good stuff, does some pretty amazing miracles, changing lives. But come on, guys. I mean... Still, as I'm always saying, has times for fishing trips and parties and all the rest of it, which makes him officially less busy than most pastors. <laughs> and then the ultimate waste, crucified. I mean, what a waste. And you would have stood there on Good Friday going, it is the greatest tragedy, the most senseless, pointless thing. And you'd have been 100% wrong. The greatest waste was the greatest victory, the most beautiful breakthrough that humanity has ever experienced. It is often through waste that the grace of God flows. And so in this series, I'm going to look at three particular areas of how to waste our lives. First of all, in this uh, session today, we're going to be thinking a little more about how to waste our time. You're thinking, I didn't know I needed help with that. You do. I'm going to help you to get much better at wasting your time. And then next week, I'm going to help you with how to waste your money. You need to be far better at wasting your money. You're terrible at it, some of you. And uh, some of you going, you haven't met my wife, mate. Uh, and then in four weeks' time, I'm going to talk about how to waste your reputation, how to waste your ego at a time everyone's just paralyzed with a fear of missing out. Everyone's trying to be their ultimate self. The pressure of it all, how might we live perhaps with a little more humility? What if the time and the money and the reputation we're prepared to waste are ultimately the keys that unlock the destiny of our lives. That was Boaz's story. What if our busyness, our consumption, our need to impress are the very things that are keeping us from fulfilling our potential? And uh, many of you know Sam and me fairly well, and you are right now thinking, if Pete is seriously thinking he's going to stand there and do a talk about how to you know, not be so busy, this is the most extraordinary moment of hypocrisy I have ever seen in my life. I, I fully admit, standing before you, that I, I, I am too busy and I, I am trying to address that and I'm not proud of it. It is not clever. And, um, and that it's out of that. This is a sermon to myself, like most of my sermons, but I hope it might be useful for one or two others. Because, see, as I look back on my life, I realized that actually it was never the times I was overextended. It was always the times I had margin in my life that God moved the most powerfully. When I'm at my busiest, I'm not at my best. When I'm less busy, I'm kinder. 
I'm more thoughtful, reflective, and more creative. I I look back and think about how is a long-haired student just bumming around Europe, camping on clifftops, swimming in, in beautiful beaches in Portugal, just having fun. I wasn't on some great religious exercise But it was at that moment in that time that God broke in and gave me this unbelievable strange vision of an army of young people rising up out of an atlas which has defined my life. It came into a moment where I was wasting time. And then I fast forward a little bit and think about, you know, being pretty busy and realizing God was asking Sammy and me to just travel around Europe and, and pray and listen to him and trying to explain that to our boss at the time. And he kept saying, you just want a holiday. I was like, I don't feel like it's a holiday. He, go, he went, it's a holiday. And, 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 we were, and it was that trip. I canceled speaking engagements and other responsibilities people had to cover for me that I ended up one day in Hanhut. And I thought, wow, if they could pray nonstop for 100 years, what might happen if we tried praying nonstop for a month? That was the beginning of the 24-7 prayer movement. It was in the shutting down of all my duties and responsibilities to do what looked like wasting time that I stepped into a little more of my destiny. And I think of the many, many hours I've spent over the years in prayer rooms. I know many of my friends who don't know Jesus just think I'm wasting my time, and yet I believe those are the moments that actually define my destiny and outwork my calling. Perhaps you feel challenged in this area too. I remember being in Seville in Spain and um, a a, a Canadian lady, I was walking down with a, a Spanish guy and a Canadian lady came out of a Starbucks, she held up her Starbucks cup, she called down the street, Good, good news, guys. Look what I found. And the Spanish guy said, you have no idea how embarrassing that is. And I said, what, the whole, you know, Starbucks, you know, evil franchise thing? He said, no. She's holding a takeaway cup with coffee in it. I said, what do you mean? He said, in Spanish culture, we wouldn't dream of taking coffee away with us. If you don't have time to sit down and drink it, why would you bother? Isn't that interesting? He said, it... To us, it would be like going in and saying, I'm a bit of a hurry, just make my coffee tepid. I haven't got time for you to make it hot. It's just a waste. You know, in Spanish, the Spanish language, they have a word, sobremesa. It's the word for the end of a meal when all the pots and pans are out and you've finished eating and you just linger. You sit around talking, enjoying each other's company. Isn't it interesting that us Anglo-Saxons never bothered inventing that word because we're like, let's get on. They have a word for that moment of just lingering, wasting time together. I'm told that British people work the third longest hours in the world. The pace of life is literally, they've, uh, (laughs) scientists who don't have enough to do (laughs) have been measuring the speed at which people walk through our cities. (laughs) God bless them. And... uh, (laughs) they found out that we are walking 10% faster than we were in the early 90s. Many of us simply have no space in our schedules for interruption anymore. And then it gets worse if you're a Christian. Because 
You turn up at church and a preacher like me stands up week after week and challenges you to do more, go faster. You, you, you've got to not just muddle through. You, you've got to be a super husband, a, a, a mega parent. You've got to be preaching the gospel, sharing your faith, fighting injustice, praying 24-7. And you're like, I'm struggling to get out of bed in the morning. And then you've got like 25 prophecies over your life. I don't know how to put my shoes on if I get another prophecy. <laughs> and against this backdrop, this kind of ADHD existence, we read the story of creation. And after six days of work, very hard work, making the universe, God goes, that'll do, and takes the seventh day off. He rested. There we have proof that the God of the universe is not a workaholic. He is not a slave driver like Pharaoh. You will make me pyramids. What do we need pyramids for? I don't know, but you'll make them for me. <laughs> the God of the universe is relaxed. You know, the first thing in the Bible to be described as kadosh, holy, is the Sabbath, the day off. And we are commanded, listen to that, commanded. The third commandment is that we are to keep a Sabbath because that's how we can be like God. It is in your resting that you are like God and not just your laboring and your working and your making of stuff. And you say to me, yeah, Pete, don't get heavy on us. That's the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament doesn't count anymore do not murder is that one out the window as well like don't commit adultery are we, are we you know Jesus did actually come along and say I haven't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it wonder if there's a gentle invitation or even a challenge for us to be less busy for the sake of being more like God Sabbath is I want to suggest revolutionary in a culture and a context that is so busy and as a result so unkind. I believe it's essential to our mental health and our well-being that we learn to find appropriate rhythms, yes of work and creativity, but also of rest, reflection and recreation, re-creation. The seventh day is Sunday, it's when it all begins again. And I think if we're going to do this, we're going to have to look at all sorts of different things, but we have to start by addressing the things that drive us in our own lives, our own psyches. Yeah, you can blame, you know, your dictatorial boss. You, you can blame the, you know, the length of the commute. You can blame your three-year-old. Who knows that a three-year-old can be the ultimate tyrant in any house? But, but that... What is it within ourselves that sometimes, if we're honest, drives us too hard? I was so impressed talking with a couple in this church recently who are in a privileged position. They, they own their own house. And it's a big house. And the husband was having to work crazy hours to service the mortgage on that big, impressive house that gave them the wonderful, impressive lifestyle. 
and they realized the reason that he was having to work this hard was to service their you know, lifestyle, and so they have moved into a smaller house, kids sharing bedrooms, in order that he is now able to only work, I think, half or two-thirds time to cover the new mortgage. I think that's deeply holy, because sometimes we're so busy because we're driven to, you know, a certain lifestyle that is non-negotiable for us. And along the way, we are paying such a price in terms of the quality of our relationships. I'm not putting that on anyone. I'm just saying I think sometimes there's things inside ourselves that we have to address. It's not just everyone else making us this busy. I'll be honest with you about my own life. I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons I work too hard is this. My, many of you will know my, 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 my dad was about 35 years older than my mom. He was, a, he was an old man. My dad was older than my grandfather on my maternal side. And, and so when he came to pick me up from school, everyone thought it was, my, <coughs> it was my grandfather, you know? And he was tired and often unwell. And I've got two brothers and one of three boys. And, and I guess my dad was just in real deep kindness to us, wanted to prepare us for the fact that he was going to die earlier than normal dads. And so he would regularly, as I grew up, say, Pete, oh boy, I won't always be around. And things like that. And I know it's his kindness, but I also sometimes wonder what it does to a little person's head to know perhaps a little too early how short life is. He's my dad, he's my rock, he's my hero. He's the one I want to grow up and be like, but he's very, very temporary. So I guess we all have to do a little bit of that work. So there's something in me that says, I've got to make my mark on the, I don't know how long I've got. Those of you who know me, I don't just work hard. When I'm having fun, I'm like, let's, let, let's go and climb a mountain tomorrow. <laughs> They're like, we used to give lying in and watching a box set. <laughs> Great, it's going to be the best box set. What's the best box set? That's me. I sure part of it is just, you know, it's not all bad. I'm not beating myself up, but I think there's a little bit of that in me. I wonder what it is for you. And so we have to do a bit of internal work. I was deeply challenged and inspired actually talking to a local church leader. I won't tell you which one recently. And he said to me, um, God had spoken to him through that Bible verse, says, stand before me. He thought, I really felt God was saying, stand before me. And then he was at that stage of, is it really God? And just then, someone in America got in touch with him and said, I've got a Bible verse for you. And it was that scripture, stand before me. So, so he knew God was saying it. So two or three years ago, he began to just shut a door in his house, stand in a room, and just literally just stand there and say, God, here I am, every day. Not words out loud, not reading anything particularly worthy, just standing. And he said there's this voice in his head going, you are wasting your time. What on earth are you doing? He's a busy, busy guy. But then he said as he began to do it more and more, he said, I, I can't explain it. I began to be drawn into a place of such deep peace. And he said sometimes I would just find that 
I would be weeping there, just overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence, not achieving anything. Not achieving anything, just simply standing before the Lord. He said to me, some days an hour isn't enough, and I'll spend a couple of hours. On occasion, it's even been three hours just standing before the Lord, even though he's got hundreds of other places he should be, things he should be doing. He's learning, I believe, to step into the presence of the God who is eternal, Julian of Norwich said, my, how busy we become when we lose sight of how God loves us. So much of our drivenness, I suspect, is just plain fear. Fear of missing out. Fear of not having enough money. Fear of not making our mark on the world. And if we can just begin to understand that at the heart of the universe is a loving God who rests we're going to relax a whole lot more and know it's going to be okay. Can I encourage you with the next season of 24-7 prayer starting a week tomorrow? Book your time in that prayer room. And I could stand here and go, so you see breakthroughs, so you see miracles, so angels come, so you get great revelation. And that stuff does sometimes, in fact, often happens. But I'm going to invite you to book your time in the prayer room just to waste your time with God. Just be with God. Stand or kneel before him. Sit with him. Learn to wait. Learn to trust. My friend Tim Hughes says, God only has two speeds, suddenly and slowly. And even when he does things suddenly, he takes his time. You notice how much the Bible is just waiting, being patient learning to trust. And so I'd love just to pray for one or two people now because I just wonder if this word today is a particularly relevant one for some of us. Perhaps it's as simple as just you know you're too busy and the Lord's just saying, hey, Sabbath. Let's put some rhythms in place. It may be even here we are, mid-November, thinking ahead to January. You know, what days off, what holidays are you going to take next year? Maybe there are realignments and reprioritizations that God wants to put into your life. Or maybe you're in a season of waiting because of the frustrating slowness of God. And, and it can be so disappointing. You wish that God did things quicker, and there's, there's another talk for another time, but sometimes we just have to slow down to his pace, even though we'd rather accelerate him to ours. And so there may be some of us just need fresh grace today to wait and to walk with God in his timing, even though it's not our preferred schedule. Maybe for some of us here, this is a real gear change moment. You're in a moment of transition in your life, professionally, relationally, economically, your health. And you know this is an important moment to say, I'm going to be someone who makes space in my life to rest and to have margin 
and to be like God who in his holiness rests. And so um, I'd love just to uh, pray. I wonder if we get the band back. I, I, I want to pray over you a, one of my favorite verses from one of my favorite hymns. Uh, if you've been around this church a while, you'll have heard me pray this uh, before. But um, it's great. Band are coming in. By the way, I'm not endorsing the drinking of whiskey necessarily. Um, but this series is going to be an invitation to give the angel's share of your life to the Lord, to give him some of your time, give him some of your money, give him some of your reputation. I'm going to explain how we can do that because that is what will actually bring the very best out of your life. That's what Boaz found. That's what the story of Jesus proves. And I suspect you'll have your own versions of that story in your own life. So why don't we just, if we're able to do so, would you stand? And I, I don't think we're going to, you know, do a come down the front response today, but if you really sense the Lord speaking to you today, I want to just invite you to hold out your hands in front of you now as a way of responding to him. So I want to just pray something over you. And, and I also just want to say I'm really sorry, you know, as a preacher and a pastor, if you've ever felt that church has kind of added to your burdens. I mean, there are challenges, but the backdrop is this invitation to be comfortably yoked with Jesus, to be in rhythm with the Spirit, to, 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 to work, but also to rest, for that is the holiness of God. So let's just, those who'd like to just hold out your hands and tell the Lord the thing that you're wanting to respond to him over now. Maybe some of us, we just need to say, help, help me, Lord, to slow down. Maybe a response in us to the invitation to be in God's presence. Maybe some of us need to say, sorry. We know that we've been unnecessarily overworking disobeying that third commandment maybe that you are carrying the weight of having to wait it's not easy And so I just want to pray over you this beautiful hymn now. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Amen.